Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in today, we are on day, Aaron, we're in the 300s now. Yes, we are in our final decade. 302. Let's go. That's the sorry. That's the day that we're on, listeners. So yes, three hundred and two. Yep, day three hundred two. That way, you know right where we're picking up on this episode of Let's Read the Bible. And as a reminder for those of you who are regular listeners, and if this is your first time jumping in the podcast, we want to take time as much as we can week over week to answer questions. And we've got a, uh, a plethora of questions that are backlogged from the last several weeks. So thank you for sending those in. We're going to start tackling those this week. Uh, and if you're jumping in for the first time, uh, you may not have heard last week, but if you're a regular listener, Evan, welcome back, by the way. Hey, thanks. Thanks for being here. <laughs> uh, glad glad you're back. It definitely was a gauntlet of a, of a podcast last week, so, uh, but it was fun. Uh, but I just want to encourage you to send in those questions. Uh, and there's three ways. One is an email to email address is infogrove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line of all of the, the ways you send in the question that's a podcast question. Or you can also direct message us on social media on the Facebook uh, or on the Facebook page that we have is what I typically try to say. Uh, we're the Grove Church in Washington State, as Evan has already said. Or we also have an Instagram page as well. You can DM us there and we'll take time as much as we can. So, Yeah, we actually, we've been getting a lot of questions in the recent Which is awesome. Yeah, it's been awesome. So uh, in, in case you're thinking to yourself, boy, I sent in a question a couple of weeks ago and I haven't gotten to it yet. Like we are, we're in the backlog, but we'll, we're working our way through every one. So we're doing two this week as well to try and catch up. So because of my incompetence last week. So for listeners who don't know, I was on vacation. So I sent Aaron and Nathan, who hosted an episode with me yes. a couple months ago now. He was going to co-host with Aaron and then I sent them the wrong scripture to prep. So well, and I can take some of the weight, the blame too, because I I typically look a prep Thursday mornings before we, re- we record, so it's fresh in my mind. And I looked at it Thursday morning and started breaking it down. I'm like, wait a minute, I've already talked about Luke 15. And then I looked at the data, so I was like, oh no. <laughs> so, uh, but we got it done. It got taken care of. Uh, Nathan was sad he couldn't be here, but at the same time, there's no way he was going to be able to prep in time for the podcast recording. So. I took the weight. It was if, it was fine. And if you liked Nathan's episode, he will be back. Don't worry. Oh, so absolutely. What is that? We're gonna we're gonna rope in a few people here and there. So uh, basically, I don't know. This is behind the scenes, I guess. But normally, when one of us are on vacation, we record multiple episodes in a week to try and fi- uh, to try and fit them all in. And now we're like, you know what? We got a lot of great people here at the church. We don't need to kill ourselves every yep. time one of us has to leave. So very true. There you go. Okay. Well, we are in the Gospels. I. This we're in the depressing part of the Gospels, I guess. Yeah, right. So, I like how I got the worst part of the, this week's reading. Yeah, I well, I I, uh, I went ahead and started prepping for next week, and I realized it ends like as Jesus is being buried. I'm like, oh, that means the ending this week is going to be really <laughs> like we're just going to end on a real downer. So, yeah, you know, we all know the end. Yeah, you get his burial starting next week. I get his death this week. So. Yep. But hey, yeah, resurrection next week as well. Yeah, spoilers. But you know, if you're listening to this and you didn't know that happened, I mean, congrats. And I believe also Acts next week. Yeah, we start Acts. So this so, is our last week. The Gospels are wrapping up, which is so crazy. Yeah, this is our last week fully in the Gospels. So it's been fun. I, I love I love being able to go through them this way. It's a little bit confusing and hard to prep, but it's been really it's been really great. Okay, so let's uh, jump in. We are now firmly in the last moments before the cross, and notably, all four Gospels zoom way in at this point. And what I mean by that is, like previously, the Gospels were this happened, this happened, and it kind of you kind of get the feeling that months are going by in between stories or kind of just giving highlights. Now we're zooming in and we're getting, these are the final hours of 
of Christ before the crucifixion, and we're going to give you as much detail as we can, especially John. John is going to really zoom. Like I think I think over half the gospel of John takes place in the last week of Jesus' life. Don't quote me on that, but I believe it's something, something similar to that. Uh, the synoptics, and as a reminder, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we call them the synoptics because they're kind of dealing with a lot of the same stories, and they seem to use each other as a source, whereas John's kind of telling its own separate, equally true, but it's kind of giving you different ideas of what's happening there. Uh, the synoptics all tell us that it's two days before the Passover and that the chief priests and the scribes are looking to try and kill Jesus soon, but they don't want to do it right now because, hey, they don't want the, to cause an uproar among the people. Matthew lets us know that Jesus told his disciples that his crucifixion was coming. So Jesus isn't being super vague anymore. Uh, he's being a little vague still sometimes, but he's telling them like, hey, I'm going to be crucified in a couple of days. And again, the disciples are just like, what does he mean by that? Uh, Going forward, the in Mark chapter 14, Matthew 26, and Luke 22, these passages reveal that Judas is going to be the one to, who betrays Jesus. Mark tells us that Judas went to the chief priests and scribes with the intention to hand Jesus over to them. And then Luke specifies that it's Satan had entered into Judas when he did this. So Mark just kind of gives us that this is what Judas did. Luke gives us a little bit more of what was actually going on in that moment. And this doesn't absolve Judas of guilt, to be, to be clear, but he's basically saying that there is some... Uh, there's some satanic influence with what is happening right now with what Judas is doing. Uh, as we move forward for a little bit, we see all four gospels share the same moments from different perspectives. And this is rare because remember, John usually is telling different stories that haven't been covered in the other three gospels. Now we're actually getting all four gospels telling us the same stuff. And it's going to stay this way actually for pretty much the rest of the gospels. Um, John's going to go into a lot more detail in some of this, but they're all going to be dealing with the same ideas. Uh, so we move to one of the most famous scenes in the Gospels, the Last Supper. Luke gives us the most detailed account. So this is Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 13. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go, prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. A little creepy, but okay. And tell, <laughs> and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So Jesus is again showing that he, uh, you know, he's got some miracles that he's doing. He knows exactly what's happening. Peter and John, they go and they find this place. They follow the guy in and then Passover is ready to go. And that's where they eat. Uh, Jesus, oh, sorry, John adds that Jesus takes the time to wash the feet of the disciples as they enter in to start their meal as well. I didn't realize it was only in John. It's such a famous story to me. But yeah, it's true. There you go. Uh, and listeners, uh, to be clear, you know, if you wash someone's feet today, you know, it's interesting because it's not really something we do culturally, but hey, there you go. Uh, but it's it's not nearly as disgusting as it would have been back in the day. Keep in mind, they're not wearing closed-toed shoes. They're most likely wearing sandals. They're walking around on dirt roads all day. Think about how dirty your feet would be if you were walking in thin sandals in the dust all day long. It's gross. Uh, I, I'm, if you've ever heard a sermon on this, passage of scripture, you've probably been told that this is usually the job that you would give to the lowest servant on the totem pole. Whoever the newest servant was is the one who's going to be doing the feet washing for your guests. And yet Jesus, who is the greatest among not just the room there, he's the greatest among any person who's ever lived, washes the feet of his disciples. So 
really cool. And then I love this exchange between Peter and Jesus. So this is John chapter 13, verses 5 through 11. It says, Then he, being Jesus, poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, uh, Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what am I, what I am doing now, you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. And and, and and in fairness to Peter right now, what he's trying to do is he's trying to show that he's trying to show humility. He's trying to show that, no, like I should be washing your feet. You, uh, you are, you are above me. So I, I don't fault Peter necessarily for, for going at, 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 in this moment. He, I mean, he should just be listening to Jesus, but I, I get where his heart's at. But Jesus answered him. If I do not wash you, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is, uh, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was, uh, who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. So two things happening here. Jesus is giving hints basically the entire time that, hey, one of the disciples is – one of you guys is going gonna, is gonna to betray me. Also, I just love the idea that Peter's like, Lord, you, you, no, you don't get to, you don't, don't wash my feet. I want, I want to wash your feet or at the very least, I, I, I know that you're above me. And then Jesus says, well, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part of me. And then Peter says, just wash, wash all of me then. And so Jesus has to kind of rein him in a little bit. But I don't know. Classic Peter. I, 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 love, Peter's, uh, I love Peter's heart. He's a little brash. He puts his, he sticks his foot in his mouth a bunch, which we'll talk about today. <laughs> so I, I get the first, I get the first denial, and I think you take the other two. So yep. there you go. Uh, moving forward, Mark then tells us that uh, Jesus tells his disciples that one of them will betray him, just like we saw there, and that it would have been better for that man if he were never born. So that's a little bit awkward. Uh, Matthew then gives us this awkward scene. This is in verse twenty-five. Says Judas, who would betray him? Spoilers, Matthew, but okay. Wait, what? Just kidding. Uh, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. So basically, like, Jesus is like, One of you is going to betray me. And Judas is like, Am I going to betray you? And Jesus is like, Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's you. So, yeah. And the disciples are still confused. Uh, so then Luke gives us this point from Jesus, which I thought was interesting. This is only found in Luke. A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was going to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. (coughs) So Jesus here is contextualizing the type of leadership that he's expecting of the disciples. And I, I should clarify, this is not like, this is not just for the disciples. This is a description of how, as Christians, we are called to lead. And he, so what he says is the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Or in other words, when you look at earthly kings, when you look at people who are in power, they're almost never servant leaders. That's, an, that's a Christian ideal that Jesus is introducing, which is, which is a beautiful thing to introduce. But when you look through all of history, most leaders, and not even history, if you look at most modern leaders, I think some modern leaders, especially in uh, nations which are kind of centered on Judeo-Christian ethics, 
they at least give some lip service to the idea of servant leadership. I, I, I'm skeptical that most of them are. I think most people are not actually exercising that, but at least it's the it's an ideal that is that is put forward, and and that's part of it has the. Uh, part of it has its genesis right here in this passage, which I think is a beautiful thing. And then Jesus reminds them, I'm the, I'm the greatest, whoever was, and I'm here as a servant. I'm mm-hmm. here serving you. So go and do likewise. And there's, and that's a theme really in the entirety of the New Testament is to treat others the way that God treats us. So the the famous one, I think, is God forgives us. So we need to forgive others. And that's the, you know, the parable of the unforgiving servant and, and stories like that. But this is another one where it's Jesus came in humility to serve. Therefore, we as Christians, even when we're in positions of power, need to come in humility and serve as well. So powerful reminder. Uh, John then shares this interesting exchange between Jesus and Judas. So this is chap- John chapter 13, starting in verse 26. It says, Jesus answered, Oh, sorry. So he's revealing, again, he's revealing who's going to betray him. It is the one whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some, some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So Jesus is just straight up saying like, hey, this is the one who's going to betray me. Go do what you need to do. And Judas runs out and the disciples are like, oh, I wonder if he's going to go buy something or stuff like that. I don't know. It's easy in hindsight to read through this and be like, what are they, what are they thinking? Why don't the disciples know what's going on? Uh, and then in all these passages, we also see the institution of the Lord's Supper uh, which we call communion. That's what that's what we're doing when we take communion. We're remembering the Lord's Supper. Uh, in Catholic traditions, it's called the Eucharist as well. So, you know, it, same, same thing in those different ideas. Obviously, we view it a little bit differently, but same idea of remembering the sacrifice of Christ in those moments. And so Jesus passes around the bread. He tells them that it's his body that's been broken for him. He passes around a cup and he tells them it's the blood, his blood poured out for a new covenant. And so he's reminding them, and this is what we do when we take communion today, that we are remembering the sacrifice of Christ with the with the bread, with his broken body. And we're also remembering not just what Jesus did, we're remembering why Jesus did what he did. And we're remembering that the new covenant has been ushered in that moment as well. So it, this, is where, this is where we get the start of it. And we know that celebrating the Lord's Supper that started very early. That's not like a thing that came up later on in church history because in the letters of Paul, which are probably written before the gospels, but obviously the gospels are telling stories that took place before Paul was even a Christian, but they're already celebrating the, they're already taking the Lord's supper. So this is not a thing that kind of came up later. So Jesus is instituting it here in this moment. Uh, So getting back, uh, so continuing on with all the synoptic gospels, after all this, Jesus and disciples sing a hymn together, and they leave for the Mount of Olives. So then we then see Jesus declare that they will all fall away. Inter- so it's interesting. So th- this is the scene where Peter says, no, Lord, I will never betray you. I always picture this as being at the dinner table of the Last Supper, but it's not. They've, oh. actu- they've actually left for the Mount of Olives. So this is one of those things where, again, I like being able – doing this podcast is like deep diving into the whole Bible every year. So you just – you pick up on things that you never saw. And so maybe <coughs> – I don't know. Maybe this was spoiled for me with like kids' cartoons I watched or something like that. But yeah, this takes place while they, they've already left the Last Supper at this point. Uh, Luke then adds a warning from Jesus to be ready for a more intense period of ministry. So this is another passage that's unique to Luke. And he he goes back to remember when he sent them out for ministry and he said, hey, 
don't take a bunch of stuff, just go, it's going to be fine. And then he empowers them for ministry and they go and they cast out demons and all this different stuff. Jesus basically tells them the opposite now of, hey, be prepared. It's going to be long. It's going to be hard. He's essentially telling his disciples, this period of ministry that's coming up is going to be very intense. Be ready for it, which is, I mean, spoiler alert for, I guess it's not spoilers because it's not in the Bible, but all of the disciples except for John are going to be martyred at some point, uh, spreading the the good news of Christ. So the, the ministry is going to be very difficult. Uh, let me see here. Oh, sorry. I, I I skipped over this part of my notes. So this is the, actually the passage where Jesus says they will all fall away. This is Matthew 26, starting in verse 31. It says, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike at the shepherd and the sheep and the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Uh, we already kind of spoiled it, but that's not going to be true. <laughs> Peter is not going to live up to that statement. Uh, we're then going to zoom in on John. John, the next four chapters, this is chapter 14 through, I guess, three chapters, 14 through 17 and a little bit of 18, uh, are going to be talking about some things that Jesus said specifically in this moment, which we don't get in the synoptics. So John is clearly remembering more of these conversations that are going on. Uh, starting in chapter 14, Jesus tries to help ease the fears of his disciples. He tells them that he is going away, that they cannot follow him, but that he is preparing a place for it, for them. We then get this famous exchange. This is John chapter 14, verses five through seven. It says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you have known, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus being very explicit, I mean, he's still kind of talking in a vague way, but he's being very explicit that he and the father are one, right? He's being, he's telling them that if you, like to, to use the, the Old Testament language, if you know me, you have seen Yahweh is kind of the idea. And this would have been a, a radical thing to say to to the first century Jews as, as they're kind of trying to wrestle through all of this. And then Jesus also making clear that, hey, when, when you're going to follow me, I am the way you're coming into eternity with me. So really beautiful. Uh, Jesus continues to make it clear that those who have seen Jesus have seen the father and reminds them that they will be empowered for ministry after he leaves for the glory of the father. He further elaborates that this will be the Holy Spirit saying that he will reach them and even bring to remembrance what Jesus had already taught them, which kind of helps us a lot with, uh, we talked about, I can't remember when the question came in, but it was about essentially the mode of biblical inspiration. Like when we talk about how all scriptures God breathed, like what does that even look like? So this gives us a little bit of a picture into it where Jesus is straight up telling them that the Holy Spirit is going to help them remember, oh yeah, Jesus said this, I forgot about that. So that's probably what's going on with some of the stories in the gospels is there is the, they're miraculously being able to recall some of these things. Uh, Jesus then tells his disciples that he is the vine and that they must remain grafted to him. We then get this long passage that I love. Uh, this is in John chapter 15, verses eight through 15. It says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. And for all for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Oh, I love this so much. So I, lo- I love this moment of Jesus just saying, like, I call you friends. And it kind of brings full circle, just this whole idea of the relationship that we have with God being healed through the work of Christ. And also this, the idea of abide in my love, that we as Christians, we are to bear fruit and that we are to show God's love to other people. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. So beautiful reminder in that passage. Uh, Jesus then gives us a comforting reminder that the world hated him. So don't freak out if it hates you. <laughs> like just to kind of paraphrase it a little bit. Hey, Jesus Jesus straight up says, everyone hates me or not everyone, but the, the world hates me. The world rejects me. They're going to do the same to you. Don't worry because you're in good company if that happens. Uh, he also says something that seems crazy, that they should be thankful that he is leaving because if Jesus doesn't leave, then the Holy Spirit would not come. So that's kind of a cool way to think about it as well. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I often think about like, man, I wish Jesus was just here in the flesh that we could meet him and talk to him. And you know, to be honest, I still wish that a little bit. But what Jesus is saying here is that the Holy Spirit is a greater gift to the church. And, and what I mean by the church, again, is like this universal community of Christians, that the, the Holy Spirit indwelling each and every one of us is what the Bible is working toward, and we should be thankful that that's what we have. Uh, Jesus keeps reminding the disciples that even in the midst of their grief, as he is going away, they will feel the joy of their empowerment for ministry. He also tells them that the time of speaking in figures of speech is almost done, which I'm sure a bunch of the disciples were just like, Sweet. I can't wait for that. Uh, and then he will speak plainly about the Father. So the days of Jesus speaking in kind of kind of riddles is over. Is that rain? Wow. It's loud. That's not rain. Okay, we're back. It wasn't rain. It was just a weird heater kicking on. So maybe you didn't hear any of that in the background and you're just like, what are they talking about? But it was very distracting for me and Aaron. We could like barely hear each other. So there you go. Okay. But don't worry, listeners. We're back. Uh, <laughs> chapter 17 was a beautiful long prayer from Jesus over his disciples. He prays that he would be glorified in heaven and that the Father would keep them together as one, even in the way that Jesus and the Father are one. And that's quite the statement, right? He's saying that the the community that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share as, as the Trinity is what he's praying that the disciples will share as the way that they will be kept together. So beautiful passage there. Uh, I also love Jesus' words in this portion. This is verses 20 through 26. It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the word, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love that which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. 
So I, I you know, so like there's a lot of things that we kind of take where Jesus is saying to the disciples, and they are meant to be like just for the disciples. We kind of apply those to ourselves in ways that might not be healthy. Uh, this one is Jesus making clear he's not just praying over the disciples here. He's praying for all those who believe in me through their word. So really cool that this is Jesus praying for us in this moment. So I, I love that. Uh, getting back to the synoptics, we rejoin them and we see Jesus depart with his disciples to Geth- Gethsemane, which as if you've been listening for a while, you know, I struggle with that one. Uh, Jesus brings Peter, James, and John with him to a deeper portion of the garden. And he instructs them to keep watch while he prays. Uh, we get this incredibly intimate picture into the mind of Christ in this moment. This is Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 35. It says, and going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And I think sometimes we just we skip over this portion that even – that in this moment, Jesus is afraid. Like he doesn't want to go through with this. Um, he wants to, in the sense of he wants to do the Father's will, and he wants to ensure the he wants to ensure our salvation. But he also knows that this is going to be an incredibly painful thing, not just physically, which it, which it is going to be, um, but also spiritually, like emotionally. All all of these things are going to be happening. So Jesus asks if there if there's another way. So a really, yeah, a really humanizing picture of Jesus, which is really interesting. Luke adds that while Jesus was praying, an angel came out and comforted him, which is cool. And as Jesus, uh, after Jesus prays, he finds Peter, James, and John asleep. So this is another famous story that many of us know. Uh, He wakes them up and tells them to keep watch. He kind of chastises them for, hey, I I need you to do this. Three times he he comes (laughs) back and he finds them asleep. Uh, At the finer time, at the, sorry, at the final time, he tells them, all right, it's time to get up. We're going to go meet my betrayer. So, uh uh-oh, stuff's about to go down. Uh, We then get the details of the arrest of Jesus, of the accounts. John is the most detailed. Uh, So this is what we get here. Verses three through 11 in John chapter 18. So Judas, having produced a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to him, said to them, I am he who betrayed, I am he, Judas who betrayed them was standing there with them. Uh, When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Uh, So Peter kind of sucks at aiming. Fight, fight, fight. Uh, The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup of the thought that the father has given me? So I love what's going on in this moment. When Jesus tells them, I am he, and they fall back and they fall on the ground, he's essentially letting them know that you're about to take me. I'm letting you do this. <laughs> like there's there's no there's no part of these guards who are thinking, this. I'm just really powerful and we're yeah. overwhelming Jesus. Jesus is letting them know, I could mess you up if I wanted to. I'm not going to. This is all part of the plan. Um, I wrote I'm down, pretty sure that's exactly what Jesus was thinking too yeah, as a ex- whole thing. Exactly. I'm going to mess – I could mess you up if I, I could, wanted to. I could, you know – But you I'm letting you in. Mess around and find out. <laughs> but they don't find out because Jesus is graceful and merciful. Uh, and the, the other thing I thought was interesting here is that the reason we know the servant's name, it could just be that he was a well-known servant and that the, the, John is recording his name. Usually – in the Gospels, when he's when they're giving a little aside like that, oh, by the way, that's who, who his name was. 
that's usually because that person is still living and they're inviting people to go check it. And so I, I kind of think that Malchus becomes a Christian after all this is going on. And granted, if your ear was cut off and Jesus knelt down, grabbed it, <laughs> attached it, you would be like, okay, something else is going on here. But obviously this is open-handed because it's not, he yeah. doesn't explicitly say, and Malchus went on to become a Christian. He's a, he's a cool, he's a cool guy. Go, go check him out. But I think that's what's happening there. So I, I, I like, don't disagree with you, but I actually, is it in the John account that it says when they, and that's maybe it's in the readings that I'm going to have, but the, like John is, John and Peter go and follow Jesus as he's taken back. And it says that John was friends of the high priest. Like it says the other disciples, the friends of the high priest. Oh, true. Yeah. So I actually think there's more, uh, more relational awareness because Malchus is one of the high priest's servants. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually don't think, I actually would agree with you. I think Malchus does, I think at this point, I mean, you'd be in, I don't know. I got to be careful with this, right? You, you, you have this moment where your ear is cut off. Like he's in shock and all. Like there's this like, what just happened? And then Jesus, he like, it's just this moment of, I don't know if I can deny the power that Christ carries. Um, So you kind of be a little bit foolish to think that he doesn't cross a line of faith in that moment and who Jesus says he is. Um, But I actually think there's a little bit more awareness of who Malchus is because of John's relationship. Because I think it's, maybe it's in the John account potentially because John never names himself. But it was the he, the other disciple because when he was brought into the right. high priest's house, it was John went with them as well. Like no, that, that's a good. That's th- some of what's going on. So I think there's more of that going on. But I do still think Malchus is a very familiar name and has this incredible moment because of the, the ear being cut off. So. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I, I totally forgot about that whole aspect of it as well. So you know, it's one it's one of those open handed things that I like to believe for it's, sure. Absolutely, it's, it's kind of like believing that uh, I heard somewhere that the rich young ruler could be Barnabas. There's not really anything to support huh. that, but I, li- I like thinking it that. Makes you feel better. Yeah. I like thinking that he- uh, he, he went away sad, huh? Yeah. He learned the error of his ways and he becomes one of like the missionaries of the early church. That'd be awesome. Okay. Uh, Mark, the Mark account adds that a young man followed, uh, so follows after when Jesus is taken, but then the guards see him, they grab his cloak and the guy runs away. His cloak is ripped off, so he runs away naked. It's kind of weird because this is only in Mark. I, I, most people think that this is Mark. And yeah. that he's so, and, and why I say, because remember that Mark is the account of Peter, probably. Well, John Mark is writing down what Peter remembers. Uh, not necessarily. Like it could be that Mark is writing down a lot of what he recollects as well, because what this says to me is that Mark was in that that outer group of disciples for a lot of it, for, for a lot of what was going on. If he, if he was here for this moment, it seems likely that he was there for a lot of the other moments as well. Um, but either way, I think this is Mark kind of inserting himself into the story. And and this is the thing that only he would have known happened. And so, and, and kudos for Mark, because this is an embarrassing thing. So way to, way to put it in there. Um, I also, I thought this was interesting. It also shows some level. I want, I want to be careful with how this says, because Mark really has a great redemption arc, but this shows some level of cowardice where he's, he's afraid, right? He doesn't stand with Jesus. And to be clear, none of the disciples do at this moment. So it's not like an especially Mark thing. But he doesn't stand with Jesus in this moment and he runs away. Uh, This is going to come up again. Mark is going to have another show of at least some level of cowardice when we get to the book of Acts and him and Paul are going to get, get into it a little bit, but don't worry. The relationship gets healed. We've talked about that before in the past of the podcast, but it's interesting to see, to see this kind of character arc that Mark is on. And this is the first time we really hear from him. So there you go. Uh, Well, Aaron, 
that wraps it up for my portion of reading this week. So you get the you get the even more depressing portion. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, but before we get into the trial and crucifixion of Christ, uh, we do want to take a moment to ask you to leave us a five-star review. If you haven't yet, it's just a way to help get the podcast out there to more people, continue to grow this community of people listening to uh, the podcast and reading the Bible together. And on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. And if you do, we'll read it on the air to give our listeners a shout out, just like we're doing for... Ruby Diana 44. Whoa, snap. So yeah, she's from Tampa, Florida. This is what she says. She said, so earlier this year, I decided to get closer with God and wanted to know more about the Bible. I went to Catholic school from K-8, uh, so it's kindergarten through eighth grade. So I only know about the most famous stories at a rated PG level, of course. This podcast has helped me learn way with four Ys, way more than I could have ever learned. So thank you. I like it that it's unedited and raw, uh, even just like we had the little little moment of loud noises that distracted us. It's unedited and raw, and it shows more realistically you're just two guys helping people learn stories of the Bible. Thank you all the way from Tampa, Florida. And if you're uh, if you're curious if the podcast is actually unedited, we're leaving in that thing about the heater turning on and us getting confused. So there you go. And if we weren't planning on doing that before, we're doing it now because Evan just said it. But, Boom. Yeah, we would love for you. I appreciate the 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 shout out, and I do appreciate the 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 fact that you're picking up on the fact that we're we're not perfect scholars, but we do love God's word. God's word has transformed our lives, uh, and so to be able to share and take some time out of our week to share uh, with you, our listeners, about the plan we're working through, and even all the way from Tampa joining in the podcast with us, we appreciate you. So thank you for doing that and leaving that review. And if you haven't left a review yet, please do it today. That would be awesome. Uh, we're going to continue in the, uh, obviously the leading to Jesus's death. Spoiler alert. That's where we end this week is Jesus is officially dead. Uh, and at this point though, we're picking up in John chapter or after the John chapter eight passage, uh, we're picking up the synoptic gospel account where Jesus is, is then being sent to Caiaphas's house. Um, he's not the, he's not the hype. Is he the high priest or he's, He's the father of the high priest. I think that's what it is, right? Uh, yeah, Caiaphas, he's the father of the high priest, Annas, is what it is. Yeah, Caiaphas is the one who the Pharisees consider as the true high priest, I believe. Yes. And so, then, yeah, Annas is the one who the Sadducees consider the high priest. Sure. If I remember. You correctly. know more than I do about that. Uh, but, I don't know. So he's going to Caiaphas's house first. Uh, or he was, yeah, he's going, he was sent to Annas's house, went to Caiaphas afterwards. Um, and so this is the account in the Synoptic Gospels that talks about Jesus taken to this house. It then uh, alludes to Peter following at a distance. Uh, then he ends up settling in a court by a fire pit that's been created. So that and that was where he's keeping warm because it's in the middle of the night. Which this this is not typical. This is not how the Sanhedrin or the religious leaders operate when it comes to legal matters. They it's it's meant to be a public affair. It's meant to be a public display. So the fact that it's happening in the middle of the night shows that there's some secrecy to it. It shows that the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are afraid of what would happen if they do this in public, which we saw throughout the Gospels, mind you, is there are moments where they were frustrated with what Jesus was saying because they were calling him out, even as we read recently last week and the week before about the Pharisees' response to Jesus' rebuke. And so they're doing this in the middle of the night to prevent the crowd from having a say. Uh, and prevent the influence of the crowd to prevent them from doing this because the the audience and the people in Jerusalem are 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 supporters of Christ. And so in the middle of the night, this is happening. So it's cold. Peter's in the courtyard with the other uh, uh, other guards and and some of the the servants of the the Sanhedrin. Uh, and then this is where we find uh, Peter being confronted by a maid. 
uh, saying, hey, you're one of him, one of his disciples, aren't you? He denies it. This is what Jesus was alluding to on the way to Gethsemane. Uh, and so he denies it. Another maid comes and denies it. And then says, it finally says a bi- another bystanders about an hour later confronted Peter again, which he denies. Um, and we see the similar accounts in Matthew and Mark there. We, Mark has this denial. So we're going to read a few passages that are overlapping the same story between Matthew and Mark and then even Luke, uh, which I want to read this part of Luke because I think there's some descriptive things in here that Luke stands out, but they all cover the same content. The Jesus is brought before uh, the high priest. He is now standing before Caiaphas. He's now being confronted and asked these questions. Peter's being confronted about being his his um, his follower. And then we get this in the Luke account. Uh, it says, they seized him and led him away, referring to Jesus and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter followed at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the night, in the middle of the courtyard, sorry, sat down together and Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the light, they looked at him closely and said, this man was with them too, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, you are one of them too. And he said, man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting this man was certainly with him since he also is a Galilean. So obviously this is the denial. This is the the, the confrontation that we see. Um, and Peter responds again, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And it says immediately when he, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And this moment I think is so, if you've seen the passion of the Christ, you saw this moment in Luke because this is, Luke is the only one that highlights this or focuses on this. It's this dramatic moment in the, in the movie, the passion of the Christ, where as Jesus is standing before, he's not been brought fully into the house yet. There's this courtyard moment. Peter denies Christ. The rooster crows and Jesus looks at Peter in the midst of this denial. And that's, that's, this is where they draw that experience from. It says this in verse 61, it says, then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, behold, the rooster crows today. You will deny me three times. And in every account we have this in, in, uh, in the gospels and the synoptic gospel accounts is that Peter says he went outside and wept bitterly at this moment, Peter recognizes what Jesus said was true. He recognizes that he's denied his Lord and it brings the right response in sorrow. And he runs away and is, is goes outside and he's weeping bitterly and, and, and distraught and, and sorrowful, which is again, like I said, the right response The Luke passage finishes. And he went outside after he went outside and wept, says the men who were holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. And after blindfolding him, they kept asking prophesy who is it that hits you? And there were other many blasphemous things that they were said to him. So this is where the this is where the trial picks up. This is where you can see they're they're on a mission, uh, which is they've been on this mission for a long time now, and it's finally coming to fruition. They've only got a mob around. They don't have an audience around that would help keep them accountable to justice. And John eighteen, the passages of John eighteen carries the same account, the same story going on. But what he does do, and I think, and this is one of the things that we see. With John is his closeness to Jesus, his, 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 you see the emotional engagement and the awareness of what's going on. So we see a more personal insight to the context. And so John alludes to the bystander. Uh, so it was two maids and then a bystander that we see in the gospel accounts. Uh, but John alludes to that the bystander from the synoptic accounts, actually the accuser was the servant of Malchus, who is the one that had the ear cut off. Uh, and John would know who he was because he has connection to the high priest. And so that was a little side or a little add addition that John gives to this account going on. 
At this point, Jesus then is, it will jump into the Synoptic Gospels here where Jesus is delivered to Pilate. So at this point in Mark 15, 1, it's a very simple verse. It says, in essence, they tied up Jesus at this point and brought him to Pilate. Matthew 27, 1 through 2 covers the same same basic premise and thought there. Uh, and Luke 22, 66 to 71, we'll see this. Um, it connects the final straw breaking moment of Jesus identifying as the Messiah as the reason why they send him to Pilate. So in Matthew and Mark, we get the, hey, at this point, they time up and send him to Pilate because the previous accounts had already covered uh, the accusation and the response of Christ. Luke 22 connects it more clearly. This is the final breaking, uh, the final straw breaking moment for Jesus to be sent to uh, Pilate himself. Uh, and then we shift into, into Matthew, which is the only um, gospel writer to carry and cover this account of Judas. Um, and I think it shows an interesting piece to the conversation where what Judas did I'm not, I'm not entirely sure if all of the gospel writers are fully aware of it just yet, of the betrayal. Oh, that's not true. They actually, they were in the garden, so I lied. Um, but it does show a very – so my, my then response to that is I think that there is there is some frustration. I think there is – like John, who loves Jesus like crazy, one of the 12 that he walked with for the last three and a half years has, has basically handed Jesus over – and so there is some animosity. So you don't see any other account besides Matthew, who's a tax collector, who's just provi- providing an account. So I wonder if there, and this is the open-handed like uh, speculation, is this like part of like John and 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 Matt or Mark's like I don't want to talk about Judas. He he betrayed our Lord. He doesn't need to be named in this in this account. Um, and so it it's neither here nor there. Luke doesn't really highlight this either. It's only Matthew. But yeah, this, it, it is kind of an interesting. It's an interesting omission for sure, just to kind of because it, it, it's, it's this is very humanizing to Judas. Totally, it's just coming up. Um, whereas, like, yeah, you're right. The other two kind of were just like, ah, whatever. So, yeah, they, they want know. nothing to do with it. Yeah. Is what it seems like. So when I'm reading at it again, I'm trying to, as I read scripture and throughout my life, I'm trying to not put myself in their shoes, but understand and empathize with the context with with which they're dealing with, because they're human people. They're yeah. not. They're not any. They're obviously more special than me because of the time that they were living where God had created and put them in that place in the history of time and how God used them. But I do think there is a lot of humanity that we get to see, even with Peter putting his foot in his mouth all the time, denying Christ, cutting off a guy's ear. Like there's these human human moments, but I do wonder if there's some of that humanity on display with the omission of right. Judas as well. To- this is total speculation on my part. So like, I'm just like, just thinking about it. Um, I wonder if Matthew felt like an outsider in the group of the hmm. disciples, given his history of being a tax collector and probably, again, pure speculation. I, I would guess there was some struggle of the other disciples to accept him, at, at, at least at the beginning, hmm. given his history. Yeah. Don't know if that's true or not. Yeah. Like, I'm just kind of thinking through like Matthew specifically, what was unique about him. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder if in Judas, he also sees an outsider and in this moment just wants to record a little bit about like, like what Judas did was completely evil, but he even I just sorry I'm not going to spoil what you're about to read, but but show that Judas wasn't just like a maniacally laughing all the way with, with yeah. what's happening here. Yeah, and so I think, I, and I'll say this, and then I'll read the passage because it's it's something I, I chose to read. I want to read today, but um, play the play the series of events that has happened: Passover meal, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, Jesus or Judas was in the room at this point as well. 
the dipping of the bread and handing it over and saying, going and do what you do. And it even says in the gospel account that the disciples thought that Judas, what Jesus was implying there was that Jesus was to go buy more food or go give money or whatever to the poor. He was supposed to do something that, that Jesus had already established Judas to do, um, which then indicates also that Jesus didn't tell all the 12 everything all the time. He had different conversations with different of the disciples. Anyways, all that to say, like there's this significant moment they all share and then Judas leaves. And the next time they see Judas, he's with a mob of people with swords and clubs and, and torches gives Jesus a kiss on the cheek and then essentially hands him over in betrayal. And so there is, there has to be some of this emotional response. But anyway, so Matthew takes this and he says this in verses three through 10. It says, then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus has had been condemned, was full of remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. What's that to us? They said. So Judas responds, I have betrayed innocent blood. The Chief priests and elders say, well, what is that to us? See to it yourself. So he threw the silver into the temple and departed. Then they, then he went and hanged himself. And I want to be clear, like this, this is a, this is the lowest of the lows for Judas. This is a broken moment with deep, I mean, you have on one hand, Peter who denies the Lord in, in public in front of people who call him out, who he denies the God that he said he would never leave. He denies the guy that he stood up for and cut a servant's ear off because they were trying to arrest an innocent man. And he went out of the courtyard weeping bitterly. And then you have Judas who recognizes his, his wrongdoing. And he is just as sorrowful and, 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 dis, and, and in despair. And then he went and hanged himself. And, and it's this, it's this sad moment to be honest. Like it's, it's this, broken moment that as I read that, like it should evoke not a, oh, it just happens. And I think sometimes I'm guilty of that. I think sometimes I'm guilty of reading passages like this and removing the humanity of the brokenness in the moment in my own heart. But it's, it's, a, it's a sad moment. Jesus didn't want him to go do that. And, and so obviously God used all of the situations and, and storyline up to this point to fulfill his will. But it is, it's a very, it's a very devastating moment in, in human history and even in the discipleship in the disciples' lives as well. Uh, it says in verse six, it says the chief priest took this over and said, it's not prepared to put it in the temple treasury since it's blood money. So they even admit in this moment after he went away that it was blood money, that it's like, well, it's not our problem. It's yours. You're the one that did it. So you figure it out. Uh, they conferred together, bought the potter's field with it as a burial place for foreigners. Therefore, the, the field is called the blood of the blood field to this day. Um, and then it, it's, but it, again, this is part of the fulfillment of, Jeremiah, which is what it alludes to in verse nine about the 30 pieces of silver. Uh, and they bought the potter's field as the Lord directed me. That's something coming from Jeremiah that draws back into the new Testament fulfilled in this moment. Um, but I think the death of Judas is a big deal. And I think it's, it's one that I, I hope for us as we read it evokes kind of a, a, a certain level of grief for humanity because that's the, the, he was creating God's image. Like he was one of God's chosen people to be a follower and a disciple. And he had a love of money and he had a love of stuff. And so he missed the truth and the hope of Jesus there. Um, moving on, we get this, the trial now happens before Pilate and Herod. Uh, and what I mean by that is after this moment of, of Jesus being, uh, after Peter denies him, after he's kind of being mocked and beaten and blindfolded, say, Hey, if you're, if you're the Messiah, like, who, who hits you? And they're speed, spitting on him and they're abusing him and they're saying all sorts of blasphemous things. After he's tied up and brought to Pilate, he now stands before trial on Pilate. 
Uh, Pilate questions him about being the king of the Jews. Jesus simply says, you've said it. So he's speaking in a way that doesn't specifically affirm or confirm an accusation. He's speaking in a way that doesn't deny it. It's almost like pleading the fifth. Uh, And so he says, you have said it. And he then continued to be accused by the priests even further. Uh, So it's, it's this moment that we see in, I believe is the John account, um, and because it's the morning of the Passover, they won't. So you have this back and forth happening. So it's Pilate going to the crowd, finding out what they want. Jesus is brought into the house, um, back into like a prisoner's quarters where Pilate can then address him or figure out what's going on. And so you see this back and forth that I'll get to here in a moment because I want to read the John portion. I'm actually going to read the Luke portion and the John portion back to back passages because I love the the picture that we're getting from there. But Pilate goes back and forth between the crowd and Jesus, circles back with questions, um, and asks him if he's going to defend himself. But Jesus remains silent, which amazes Pilate. We see that in Matthew, the Matthew account, where it says it amazed the governor. Uh, and then we we get this moment in verse Luke or in verses one through twelve of Luke chapter twenty three. It says, "Then the whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate." They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment to taxes of Caesar, and saying that he himself is is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. Pilate then told the chief priests and the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. But then they kept insisting. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, wherever he started, even to there. So Pilate is getting and beginning to understand that this is this is more of like a family feud, like an internal kind of conflict. It's not really something that's legally wrong or, or binding that would cause any kind of punishment. Pilate said, or when in verse six, when Pilate heard this, he asked if the man was a Galilean, finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod's who was also in Jerusalem during those days. So because Herod was local, he realized it's under his jurisdiction. Pilate says, okay, I'm done with this. Send him to Herod. Let, let Herod, who at this point is a lesser man, a lesser in position of man, uh, sends him to, to Herod. Uh, Herod, it says, verse eight, was very glad to see Jesus for a long time. He had wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So in other words, he had heard of all the incredible things that Jesus had done. He had he didn't have as much interest in learning about what Jesus says. He just wanted to see him perform. And so that's why he was excited to see him. Um, verse nine, he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer. So at this point, Herod is getting frustrated by him because he's not doing what he wants him to do. Verse 10 says, the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Then Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in bright clothing and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Herod became and Pilate became his friend. Previously, they had been enemies, which is again, Jesus is a uniter of people. So uh, I just thought that'd be a fun thing to say. But in this moment, Herod's not getting what he's want, wanting. He's getting frustrated. He knows he's not, he's not getting anywhere. He's going to send him back to Pilate because Pilate has a better authority to do what he wants anyways and to do what the Jewish people want in this moment anyways. But he, this is where you see him mocked. This is where you see him put in royal purple clothes, where you see the crown of thorns, which is the things we'll get to in a minute. Um, this, you see that it was Herod is the one who, whose soldiers had put all these things on him and treated him the way he did it and sent him back to Pilate. Uh, in John chapter 18, verses 28 to 40, this is the back-to-back account I want to read. Uh, so similar passage and account of what's going on here, but it says this in verse 28. It says, they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the court headquarters themselves. Otherwise they would be defiled and unable to eat Passover. So it's, it's partaking in fellowship or, or, or space with the Gentile. 
And so that's why, so they were standing outside of the headquarters while Jesus was brought into the headquarters. So Pilate was going in and out. Uh, so Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Uh, so this is kind of what's going on before he sent to Herod. Pilate told them, you take him and judge him according to your law. It's not, and they said, it's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said, they said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. The kind of death that they were talking about is not a stoning because their law allowed that. The kind of death that they wanted to is what we all know Jesus endured and what Jesus, how Jesus died, and that's crucifixion. They wanted Jesus to suffer. They wanted Jesus to be humiliated and to suffer a horrible, wretched death. And their law did not permit suffering in death. Their law permitted punishment and consequences of breaking the law. And the challenge here is we can see that Christ actually didn't break the law. He was actually one who was living according to the law. And the the religious leaders didn't like it because it was going against the very things that they were trying to establish for their own piety and for their own righteousness. And so we see this, that's part of the tension that is being played out. That's part of the reality. It's not legal for us to put anyone to death. So verse 32 says, they said this so that Jesus' words, I've already said that, sorry. Uh, Verse 33, then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus and said, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied, you own the, you own na- your own nation and chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, says, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth, Pilate said Pilate. After he said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a revolutionary. And we're shifting into this point in the, in the Synoptic Gospels, but I want to stop for a moment. And I, and I appreciate the discourse. Again, this is the intimacy and the personal uh, relationship that John has with Jesus, where he's he's aware of conversations and he's present in these moments. Uh, but you see this back and forth where Pilate is understanding he's in a position of rule. He is trying to determine whether or not this man is guilty. What is the thing that's triggering the, the Jewish leaders and the religious leaders? And they can't get clarity on all this. So Pilate's going back and forth and then he engages in this discourse. Pilate knows about Jesus. What Pilate is trying to get to is for Jesus to incriminate himself by his responses. Jesus is not incriminating himself. He's just speaking plainly and truthfully which then leaves Pilate in a, in a kind of up a creek without a paddle because there's no grounds that he really has for charging him, even as he admits to the crowd. Uh, and so then as we shift into the Mark and Matthew and Luke accounts where we have this Jesus versus Barabbas, we get the context of what John has alluded to here, where it says, they, you, have the, you have the custom of releasing one prisoner. Mark chapter 5, verse 6 to 15, give us the context of that. Uh, and that the mob in this moment chooses Barabbas over the innocent Jesus. Pilate is asked by the crowd to release someone else. Pilate asks, uh, I'm going to read this. The crowd came up again and began to ask Pilate to do the same for them as it was custom. Pilate asked him, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of the envy that the chief priest had handed him over. So in Pilate's assessment of what's going on, he knew it was out of envy that the chief priest handed Jesus over to be crucified. 
But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that they would the, he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, then do you want me then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? And again, they shouted, crucify him. So Pilate gives in at this point moment to pacify the crowd because Pilate really doesn't want to riot because the Roman government will come down and he will be suffering the consequences because he can't rule. And so he's pacified and he gives the crowd what they want. But it is this incredible like recognition and awareness by Pilate, who's an outside party. He calls out the envy. He recognizes the envy and the jealousy of the chief priests and leaders. Uh, the Matthew account is a similar account. It does add that Pilate's wife, which is a, it's pretty significant, Pilate's wife has a dream that night and says have nothing to do with him because she was tormented in a nightmare because of him. So, And, and she specifically says to have nothing to do with this righteous man. Um, but then it says in, in the Matthew account that the crowds persuaded him uh, because he wanted to be like he wanted to be liked and he wanted to maintain his authority and status. Uh, and so then there's this moment in the Matthew account that is also added that Pilate takes a bowl and washes his hands clean. And he says, in essence, the blood is not on my hands. Um, and he hands him over uh, at that point to be crucified. Uh, and the Luke account we have, um, Jesus declared innocent is, is the crux of Luke's account. Um, and this is what Luke kind of builds the majority of, of this portion in chapter 23, verse 13 to 25 around. Jesus is whipped and then declared innocent, but the crowd continued to persist, which is why they ended up handing him over. Pilate ended up handing him over. Uh, but there is this moment where Jesus is presented after being beat uh, and mocked and then presented back to the to the Jewish leaders. Um, and, and we see, in essence, we see in John 19, 1 through 16. And again, you again, I hope you're, the one thing I love about this reading plan, the way it plays out right now, is you're seeing the synoptical accounts, synoptic accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and their history, their information. You're seeing the story of what's happening, the narrative. But with John, you get a, a deeper level of intimacy and personal reality, a personal piece to the conversation. Uh, and so even in the John 19 passage, you see that Jesus is beat. The soldiers give him a crown of thorns and put a purple robe on him, which is a, a sign of royalty. Uh, it's, it's a very wealthy uh, demonstration. You walk around a purple, it's royalty and wealth. Um, they mock him, they spit on him, they slap his face, they again, he is again at this moment after being presented back to Pilate after all this, he's declared innocent to the religious leaders and the chief priests there. And then we have this moment in John 9 verses 6 to 16. It says, when the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. And if you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ, this moment is very, for me, it's, it's ingrained in my mind, that moment of declaration by the mob, by the crowd, where they're shouting, crucify, crucify. Uh, it says, Pilate responded, take him and crucify him yourself, since I find no grounds for charging him. And again, the Jews remind him, we have, we have a law, the Jews replied, and according to that law, he ought to die because he him, made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was, no, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? So whatever happened in this moment, the statement he declared himself a son of God was very thought-provoking, challenging because in, in the Roman government and the way the Roman uh, theology worked, if you will, Caesar was God. Caesar had a divine, whoever was Caesar had a divine appointment. And so when he hears that he's a son of God, then it's a big deal. It's like, well, if he's a son of God, then he's going to come directly against the Roman government and the throne. And so he went back into the headquarters of more afraid than ever. Where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. Verse 10 says, so Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? 
don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the, and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if I hadn't been given, if it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has a greater sin. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him, but the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. So again, immediately calling into question his authority and allegiance to Caesar, which is, it's a treasonous offense if that's actually, if that actually plays out. So Pilate is now put in this weird position, which is where you see more input and more insight into why he was looking to pacify the crowd because he knew that his, his life and, and position were on the line. And so he had to make a decision and they're calling him out. They're saying, if anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar, so they've, they've finally made the argument that is convincing Pilate to just uh, acquiesce to what the crowd wants. Verse 13 says, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on a, the judge's seat in a place called the stone pavement, uh, but in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for Passover and it was about noon. Then he told the Jews, here is your king. There's a very significant um, picture being played out here as, as John is describing the stone pavement with the Passover, uh, which is uh, the, the the sacrificial lamb. It's It's meant to be uh, it's strategically mentioned to be very uh, symbolic of what's about to happen. It says, they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? And he said, and the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he handed him over to be crucified. And then they took Jesus away. And and this is, this account of John gives you a very strong picture of the, I think what should evoke grief and sorrow from from not just us, but I think even recognizing there's the humanity and the selfishness and the sin that is present in self-righteousness and God's people. And this is all according to God's plan, right? So we know God is, is redemptive in purpose, but it doesn't remove from from what's going on, heartbreak and discouragement. And And really for us, even today, it should evoke a certain level of of, of brevity, if that's the word, a certain heaviness that we are somberness, but that, that obviously we know he rose again. And, and he, I feel like this is like a good Friday moment where Easter weekend, we intentionally take time to reflect on the death of Christ, the cross of Christ, which leads us to hope and joy in the resurrection. But it should be intentional to remember what sin caused God to do, how God had to redeem humanity because of sin. And, and there is a moment, even as we're reading through the reading plan now, coming into the end of the year, that it really, I think, is important. And my hope is it challenges us to even stop and consider the the heaviness, the the, the, the darkness of what's really going on, where it's, it's a devastating reality. Uh, Mark continues in a similar account. Uh, it's a much smaller account where Jesus has led away to be crucified. Matthew is, is a very similar account to Mark. Um, very quick overviews, but in essence of referring to him being led away uh, to be crucified. And Mark, Matthew, and Luke, uh, and even John, a very quick verse here. We are introduced to Simon the Syrian. Um, if you don't remember the name, but it, this is the father of Alexander and Rufus. You remember we talked about him? Never. This is the first time we brought him up. Uh, and in essence, he's just a passerby. He's just someone coming in from the countryside to worship at the, the the temple because that was customary leading at this time of the festival. Uh, they come in daily to to worship. But as Jesus is walking out, he's carrying, it's not, he's not carrying the full cross as we understand it now. 
Uh, typically, the vertical post was already on site. It was the um, the cross piece that his hands were nailed to that he would have carried on his back, on his shoulders uh, as he's walking. But what happens in this moment that we, we get alluded to here in these accounts on the road to Golgotha is that Jesus is not capable of carrying this piece of cross anymore. This he's not carry he's not capable physically of carrying the cross that he has to. So as the Roman soldiers are leading out the three men to get crucified or leading Jesus specifically. Um, the Simon and the Serene has his kids with him They're coming in to worship at the temple and they call Simon to uh, carry the cross for him. Uh, and because Jesus' body was giving out, is depleted and and on the verge of um, just fatigue and, 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 I mean, dying in essence because of the blood loss and because of the beating he just took. took he, was, he was really depleted in this moment. Uh, Matthew t- details a similar account. In um, Luke, we get a similar account, but there is a moment where Jesus addresses the mourners. Typically, when this was happened, there'd be Ladies who, it's not a profession, uh, and this is, and I don't want to downplay the, what the ladies are doing, but um, there, there would always be a processional of those who are dying, of their family, of those, their loved ones, and they would be wailing and weeping behind. And we saw this even with, uh, I believe it was the religious leader's daughter, who, uh, as Jesus arrives, I think it was Jairus' daughter, as Jesus arrives at the house, the women are wailing and weeping. There was almost like not a professional mourner group, but there were a group of women who would mourn. They would grieve the loss of, of loved ones and kids and family members. And so this was happening and Jesus stops or doesn't stop, but he looks to these women and we get this quote from him in the book of Luke that refers to, in essence, just tells them that they shouldn't mourn for his death, but they should mourn for their families and for young families because the time is coming about the fall of Jerusalem and the persecution of Christians and and. He says, you should mourn for those individuals, for moms who have young kids who are nursing. Um, it would have been better for they haven't been born. And so he takes a moment to redirect their mourning because I think even in this moment, it's a glimpse into the fact that Jesus understood what's on the other side. And as much of the grief is, I think that Jesus in, in, in this moment, he has in clarity what's happening. We, he, I think we read in Hebrews, right? For the joy set before me endured the cross. He knew what was being accomplished in this moment. Uh, and so I think there you get a glimpse of that here where Jesus says, don't mourn for me, but mourn for those who are going to have to endure persecution and suffering. Uh, John 19, 17 is just a quick a quick mention of Christ carrying the cross, and it just alludes to him carrying it. So John in this moment actually doesn't even highlight Simon the Serene, but he does talk about Jesus carrying the cross. Um, and then we get this, the crucifixion um, and and then leading into his death in this next, in the, the kind of final portions of reading for today and even this week. In Mark chapter 15, 25 to 32, Jesus is crucified. There's a sign that's hung on his cross that says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. The passerbys are mocking Jesus. Uh, they're saying, hey, he said he'd tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Let's see him do that. Let's call himself down. He's supposed to be the son of God. Let him call himself down. Like, why not? Like, let him perform miracles. He's done all these things. Why can't he do these things? Uh, And why doesn't he free himself? Uh, And it says in Mark chapter 15 that he's crucified between two criminals uh, who join the crowd in mocking him is what it says. Uh, Matthew's a similar account. I want to read the Luke account because there's some significant things here, in my opinion. It says this in Luke chapter 23, 32 to 43. It says two others criminals were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, which is Golgotha, this is where they did hangings and and things like that, 
They crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So Jesus took the prominent center, central point and figure in this moment on this hill. It said, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. And they divided his clothes and cast his lots. And so there was a very significant, again, you get another glimpse that Jesus is fully aware of what the work that he's doing is accomplishing in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the, of the agony and the anguish and what he's about to endure. He still has a, an understanding of what's coming. It says the people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself. If this, God is, if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was written above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began yelling insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God? Since you're undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly because we are getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. And I love the grace and again, the focus on the mission, the focus on redemption that Jesus again is modeling in this moment. And I just think it's such a beautiful picture that Again, we know the story if we've been in church a long time, but my hope is, and I'll kind of, I don't want to get too far ahead with application stuff, but I, my hope is that you're able to to really pick up on some of the nuances happening uh, in this leading up to Jesus' death. But I thought it was really cool in the moment where one of the criminals is jumping in and mocking him. We don't know whether the other criminal was mocking him at first not, but in this moment where Jesus says, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. I want to say if both of them were mocking, the one that rebukes the other comes through this recognition of like, wait a minute, this isn't this isn't just some guy who's being crucified. This isn't some wannabe poser. This is actually true. He claims who he says he is. And, I, and in that moment, there is this like redemptive moment for him. And we see that play out on the conversation where uh, Jesus says, you'll, truly, you'll be with me in, in paradise today. Uh, John 19, 18 to 27 is very similar to the crucifixion account that we just read. It does add that chief priests protest the nameplate, uh, in essence, wanting Pilate to add that Jesus said that he was the king of the Jews, not that he is actually the king of the Jews. Yeah, they can shove it. Which is super funny. And that's what Pilate says. He's like, what I've written, I've written. In other words, brushes him off and says, whatever, like, who cares? Like he's the king of the Jews, enjoy it. Um, and then it also adds the, uh, handoff at this moment where Jesus, John and his mother are present. They're, they're, the right there in the midst of the audience sitting close, probably in the mourners and the weeping and the, and, and the, the, the people individual who are navigating the sorrow of the moment. And he just hands off the responsibility of caring for his mom to John. Um, he says, John, Ma, mother, this is your son, son, and John, this is your mother. In essence, he's handing off responsibility to continue to care for his mom. Um, it's interesting to me, and I, didn't, I don't know if I've ever picked this up before, and Evan, I don't know if you've picked up on it before, but it's interesting to me that there's no mention of Joseph in any of these moments. And so there's part of me that wonders, was there, is, is Mary a widow where oh, there's I, the responsibility or like, did Joseph just, I get, I, I don't know. I th I think f I'm like 99% that Mary's a widow is what happened. Okay. So I don't think Joseph left. Cause I don't know what you're thinking. About, no, I but. but I just, it was, it was curious to me that, that there was no mention of Joseph beyond, like really beyond the birth narrative. The birth. And then he was, isn't this Joseph's son? So I knew that he like he yeah. was still around for a while, but my, the assumption that I have to make, and I, and I did make that assumption, but again, I'm trying to leave it open because I don't have an answer. But like, 
what where's Joseph in these moments? And the handoff makes it appear that he's a she's a widow. Um, I don't think at this point Joseph would have left her. No, but I just he's not in the picture anymore. So I imagine at that point, even as you said, he probably is. Yeah, I think assuming Joseph, assuming Joseph is in his twenties when Jesus is born, which is about an appropriate age for what a, a man would have been. Mary would have been a little bit younger at that point. That means by the time of Jesus' death, he would have been in his mid-50s, which um, for so for someone living in poverty in the ancient world, the mid-50s is very much a time that you wouldn't necessarily expect to live to. So I think it's it's very reasonable to think that Joseph had died Great. somewhere before Jesus' ministry began. That's why I asked. That's why I think. Yeah, least. and it, was, it, it, just, it, it just hit me all of a sudden as I was reading through and prepping. I was like, where's Joseph? Like, Because I know the handoff is very significant. The handoff is is very intentional because Mary doesn't have anybody at this point. Like what happened to James and, and, and Jude and these are like, where are they at in this moment? They don't believe that Jesus is who he is right, right. now. And so there's, there's almost this, um, this pariah type situation going on with Mary and her other sons. And so Jesus is intentionally t- providing and making sure that her mother, his mother is cared for at the end of his life, because he also knows, he knows the resurrection is coming <laughs> To a degree, right? And so he knows that I'm no longer I'm no longer here for this the side of eternity. I'm right. no longer walking this earth anymore. So he's he's doing a really significant thing by handing off the care, the love, the support, and the responsibility to John, his beloved disciple, as John himself t- says. Um, and then we get uh, at the, as we wrap up in the last four passages of, of reading, we get the the death of Jesus. Um, all of them are similar accounts of Christ's death. Uh, but I, I put in my notes, Matthew is the passage to read. It carries the most content or the most uh, detail. And so I'm just going to end with this because this is how our, our reading ends. Uh, even though we end with the book of John this week and the last passage we read, but I'm going to read the Matthew account. Uh, and it says this, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon. So Jesus is not, it was about nine o'clock when they went out, I believe, if I remember my timelines correctly, this is not a quick process. This is a very long, slow, agonizing process. So at least three hours after hanging up on the cross, which was probably more, it says, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lima, Sabachthani, which that is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Other translations say forsaken me. Um, but he's quoting, even referring back to Psalm 33, I believe. Uh, but he's quoting a Psalm in that moment, but it's also alluding to utter rejection. He's alluding to, he no longer senses God's presence. He's no longer in communion or unity with God because in this moment, he's taken on the sin of the world. And uh, it says verse 47, when some of those heard, those standing there heard this, they said, hey, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of one of them ran up and got a sponge, filled the sour wine, put on a stick, and offered him a drink. But the rest said, "Let's see if Elijah comes to save him." So they still aren't understanding what's going on. They still don't know if Jesus really is who he says he is. The crowd, for the most part, uh, but Jesus cried out again, and with a loud voice, gave up his spirit. And and this is where Jesus breathes his last breath. This is where uh, in one of the other gospel accounts he says, "It is finished, and it's done." Uh, and then suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split, which is a, which is a supernatural moment because Jesus breathes his last breath. He's the, the Messiah is dead and the temple curtain being torn from top to bottom is symbolic of 
of, in essence, God ripping the curtain apart to now, because we know now it's this idea of creating access. To rip a curtain from top to bottom would have mean you've had to have grabbed it from the top, not from the bottom. The curtains were tall enough to where they'd have to, they couldn't just rip the curtain in, in the fashion from where they were standing. It actually is the, it, it was a very divine supernatural moment. It says the earthquake, the rocks were split. Again, just divine moments of the, the Messiah being born. God on earth is no longer alive. He's dead. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I saw Evan raise his hand. That's why there was the awkward pause. Oh, I was just gonna, I was just gonna say this. So it's Psalm twenty-two. Is oh, the one twenty-two. I knew it was a double number, but and then just for some extra fun, because it starts off with the "My God, My God, Why have You Forsaken Me?" But also in that Psalm, in verse sixteen, uh, it says, "For dogs encompass me, a company of evil evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all." All my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they have cast lots. So both of those things, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Anyone there who knows the scripture, that's where they would go. Yeah. And then they would remember about my hands and pe- my hands and feet have been pierced and they've uh, divided the garments. They've cast lots for the garments, both of which happened to Jesus. Yep. So kind of really cool connection. Yeah, great there. points, great reminders. And that is, I mean, it is. Whenever Jesus would allude to, to a psalm, even the New Testament authors, a writers of the epistles, um, when they mention a psalm, it oftentimes draws back the entirety of the psalm and the context with which the psalm was written back to their mind. So Jesus makes that comment. Um, it says the temple, it says the tomb, uh, sorry, it says the earthquake, the rocks were split. And this is, I mean, a pretty, again, supernatural moment, which just shows that Jesus was not just some criminal or just some guy who was crucified. He was the Messiah because these things are happening. Verse 52 says the tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city, and appeared to many. We can't just read over this. This is mind-blowing for a second. Saints who had passed away who were buried in tombs, the tombs opened supernaturally. They became alive again, and they started. They showed back up in the city and said, hey, what's going on? What did I miss? Uh, I don't know if they actually said that, but I could just imagine. It's such a crazy moment to to consider. it said, verse 54, when the centurion, those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, truly, this man was the son of God. Many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee and looked after him, we were there watching from a distance. And it says, among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary, the, uh, and the mother of the Zebedee's sons. Um, and it's just as... In the midst of sorrow, in the midst of grief and anguish, there's such is still an incredible, powerful move of God as he's accomplishing the work he intended. Uh, and this week we end with Jesus's death. We end with the last breath and we end with this supernatural occurrence after his death. And And I just think it's worth as we wrap up this week, just to, to hopefully you have a chance to read it slowly uh, and to really kind of process through what's going on because there's so much happening but just even the moments where the tombs were opened, where the rocks were split, it takes a lot of effort to split a rock, where the earth was was quaking in this moment, darkness for three hours. It's it's this incredible moment of, of sorrow, of grief, of anguish that not just God is feeling, but the, his creation is feeling and even humanity is feeling too. And so that's where we lead this week or leave this week as we finish up this week's portion of the reading. All right. Well, we may be leaving the reading portion, but we're not leaving the podcast yet. Let's talk about what we learned today. So kind of a depressing week, but so uh, true. For, for me, it comes down to, I, I loved reading in John chapter 17. It's called the high priestly prayer. 
Um, but it's Jesus praying over his disciples and then praying over us as well, which I think sometimes we take that for granted a little bit that we get to read 2000 years ago, Jesus praying over us, praying for unity. Um, and then also just the blessing of the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes I, I'm, I'm guilty of this. I always think about like, man, I wish Jesus was just in the flesh and here right now. Like that'd be amazing. Um, but oftentimes as Christians, we kind of forget the gift of the Holy Spirit and, and not just in the miraculous, which I think is, is, a, is a gift in and of itself, but also just in the daily our daily lives, like le- leading us uh, the ways that we need to be led, the, the the right conviction of the Holy Spirit, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the encouragement, all those different things. I think sometimes when Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away so that the helper may come, I think sometimes we don't actually believe that's true and, and we definitely need to. Yeah, that's so good. It's very true. I think that's something that is deeply necessary to remember. Um, for me, I think it really hinges on the end of of the reading this week. There's a reason why I read that um, that that Matthew passage um, because even in the tragedy, even in the in the difficult, even in the sorrow and the grief and the anguish, that I really think and I hope, as I said a little bit earlier, that we can take time to kind of slow down through this account. I know it's not the most encouraging or the most uplifting, but it is one of the most powerful pieces of our faith. Uh, and so I I, I really do appreciate and and really appreciate this time reading through it, just the weight and the gravity of what's happening, um, not just with Jesus' death, but the aftermath. I think the where I think it ends on the up, based upon the passage I read, not necessarily the John passage, but just the supernatural response that is that is evoked, where Jesus, and even the, symbol, the symbolism of like Jesus dying, breathing his last breath, and those who breathe, breathe their last breath physically and went to sleep for a while, were were risen again, rose again, uh, raised again. They were raised again after his death. And Jesus, and it's just a foreshadowing of his resurrection coming in a few days. But I do think it's worth remembering, like this this is the gravity and the weight of sin. This is why Jesus stayed on the cross, held sin on the cross for you and for me. And this is one of the most powerful moments of our Christian faith is a simple fact that Jesus conquered sin and therefore we have hope and confidence to continue to live righteously by the grace and work, even as Evan said, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so I think it's really a, a challenging reminder and, and hopefully a, a hope-filled tragedy for us today as we're wrapping up the death. Um, we'll see the burial next week, the resurrection's coming, and then the church explodes and launches from there. But um, no spoilers intended. But that, I just think that's a really significant moment. And way to end the reading this week, I think, was really good. There you go. Well, like we said, there's a few questions that came in this week. So we're going to answer a couple of them now. Okay, so the first one, I think this one's just kind of an easy one to answer quickly. Uh, Greetings. My question is about the book of Mark, chapter 4, verse 30. The verse says, then he said, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? I do not understand the reference to we. I'm not able to convince myself that Jesus is referring to himself and the disciples. I can only think that he is referring to the Trinity. Um, That could be. I think it's honestly just a figure of speech, though. I think it's when you're leading, when you're teaching and you're sitting with a crowd, 
a lot of times the the plural is used or the, mm-hmm. the collective is used instead of one. So instead of Jesus saying, so what shall I like? And it's, it's him looking, you can imagine him basically sitting down, looking at people in the crowds to what shall we talk about? Like that sort of thing. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think it's anything more complicated than that could be the Trinity, but I think the, the easiest explanation and, and probably the correct one for me is, is he's just using the collective we as he's teaching the crowd. Yeah. I think it's a community conversation. I think that's, I think that's more of what's going on than anything else. I don't know if there's deep, symbolism or deep theology he's trying to talk through. I just think it is a collective, it's a collective conversation, not meant to be, let me tell you something, but what should, he's setting up the conversation. What should we like in the kingdom too? Yep. Okay. Uh, Matthew five. So the second, sorry, second question, Matthew five, 30 through 32. I'm struggling with this one. The last line says, if you marry a divorced woman, it's adultery. I'm also struggling because he only lists adultery as grounds for divorce, but what about abuse slash assault from your spouse? Uh, we, we we answered something really similar to this question a couple of years ago. I I, I wish I could remember the um, the exact episode to actually point you to it, but to to talk about this again and, and and bring a little bit more into it. Yeah, this is one of the most difficult questions, just in kind of modern pastoring as as far as things that come up. So all I can say is there's a few things that are biblically extremely clear, and then there's a few things that are kind of left a little bit up for interpretation. And then all me and Aaron can do is just kind of say what we would say if someone if someone was in this situation as as pastors. What advice would we give? Um, if you have a pastor, remind 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 you we are imperfect people. Oh yeah, for sure. We're not, so I want to be clear. Like even as the pastor title, sometimes the assumption is well they know what they're talking about. We have an idea of what God would mean, but we don't have a definitive idea of what. God, it's, so it's just one of those things. You wonder why the disciples are like, well, we don't understand what you're saying. I wouldn't understand either. I. I when like knowing that Jesus was talking about his death, I don't know if I would pick up on that. So, mm-hmm. um, so I just think it, I just want to be clear. Like, yes, we're pastors, but um, it doesn't mean that what we say is hundred percent definitive. This is what the Bible says. We're just trying to under we're trying to interpret it based upon our our best understanding. Yeah. So here's so here's what the Bible is clear on. Uh, the New Testament gives us two grounds for divorce that are super clear, not argued. Uh, adultery is one, and this is in the passages that you're talking about. And then the other one would be Paul talks about, I should have written down what letter it is. It's really dumb of me that I didn't, but he talks about if, if an unbelieving spouse leaves a believing spouse, then that is, that is grounds for divorce as well. Or in, or in other words, the, the, the Christian spouse who has been left is under no obligation to try and to, to stay married to that person is kind of the idea. Um, so the, the way, and this is where it can just get really up into interpretation, right? So with the Matthew one, the actual word there is not just adultery, it's sexual, except on the grounds of sexual immorality. That certainly includes adultery, but it depends on how broadly you want to interpret that. That could be a little bit of wider. Um, I tend to land in the camp that it's talking about specifically adultery in, in that moment. But that's what I'm saying is there's kind of, there's a, there's a, depending on how you're interpreting it, there's a, there's a lane there as well. Um, and then this is where the other one would be an unbelieving spouse leaving. I, I went through, and just to give you guys a, a, a window into the way I handle a lot of these tougher questions, I always want to hear what the gospel coalition says. Uh, it's a website, you can go to it, but it's a really good Christ centered collection of pastors yeah. and they have, it's been around for, I mean, I, I remember going to them when I was like a teenager for questions and stuff like that. So it's been around forever. Um, and so usually you can get multiple answers, whether it's in long written posts, articles, blogs, or if it's just video interviews that they do. So they have a whole thing about what are the biblical grounds of, of divorce. One of the things that was brought up in the, specifically in the cases of abuse and things like that 
is that the the person has virtually left their spouse in yeah. that moment and has has made it unsafe. I'm, I'm not sure where I fully land on that, but that is an opportunity for interpretation there as well. Uh, the two things I'll say is that number one, uh, if someone was in an abusive relationship and came to me as a pastor, even if I couldn't recommend divorce, depending on where, and I haven't had the situation yet, so I, I it, it would just be something I'd have to pray through and, and really figure out like where do I stand on, on that issue. Um, you are under no obligation to stay. And so se- separation is not prohibited. And so don't if, if, if you're in that type of relationship, get out, get safe, get the law involved, make sure that you have a, a, an appropriate distance between you while you figure everything else out. Um, As an aside, that doesn't justify sexual morality. You still are to remain faithful to your spouse sexually right. in separation. So I, I, I want to be clear in that because I, I agree with you. Right? Mm-hmm. And the Gospel Coalition calls it willful desertion, right? Right. And when the physical abuse is willful desertion, creating an environment where your spouse is not safe, Ephesians 5 tells the husband to, to provide a safe and, safe and sacrificial love for his spouse, um, but it, it doesn't give an allowance to be unfaithful. Right. when you're in separation. So just just for a point of clarity, because I know it's really easy for us to justify things because my heart is deceitful above all else. And the only one who knows it is God and knows its motives. Um, but there is there is that piece for the Christian is who I'm speaking to, um, which is what I think you're alluding to and getting to the point. Yeah. And when there is desertion, when there is this separation, um, our job as Christians in that instance is to the hope is for reconciliation, but it's to remain faithful in the midst of separation while God helps work things out through counsel of pastors and counselors and the authorities and things like that. So right. I do just want to be clear about that for a second. Yeah. And so then that kind of leads into the next thing I was going to say as well, where um, not talking necessarily about abuse, but talking about like the two that are very clear, which is a- adultery and, and desertion, things like that. Um, I would almost always try and see a marriage reconciled before actually giving the 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 go ahead for a divorce um and and this would be for instance in, in cases of adultery that's not a command to divorce that's simply making that's making an allowance for a divorce um and i think that as Christians, we should be looking to heal any relationship that we're in, but specifically marriages. We should be looking to heal marriages before anything else. So that would come in there as well. Uh, the last thing to talk about with this, and this is where it gets kind of complicated. So it goes into whoever marries a divorced woman commits uh, commits adultery, right? That's, that's another thing that's said in the Matthew passage. Um, I don't think, and this is a more of an open-handed answer, I suppose. And, and by that, I mean, this isn't like 100% scripture is clear on this. I, I don't think it is right to break up a second marriage over this, if that makes sense. So for instance, if, you, if you're at the moment where um, a first marriage has dissolved, there's been sexual immorality that's been committed by far since then, and now there's a second marriage happening. I don't think the answer, because some people kind of think this, I don't think the answer is to end that second marriage. I, I think at that point, it's sin. We need to ask for forgiveness, but also push forward in that new relationship as well and, and build a strong Christ-centered marriage there. So I don't know if you, I don't know if you agree on that on that part necessarily, but it's it's a this is a really complicated question. There's a lot of different ways to attack it, so it's it's a it's a hard one to talk about for sure. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I'm trying to track with the, with what you were saying. Um, total disclosure. I was. We we had this question come in a few weeks ago, uh, and it was right when we were trying to rush to finish up a podcast before Evan went on vacation. And this question we've held for a couple of weeks on purpose. Right. Um, 
And I emailed the individual who sent the question and just followed up with him and gave him a couple of resources. One was a Gospel Coalition article, which I didn't know that that was the thing you always go to. Oh, um, so the time, it was great. But then there was another article I was reading. It was First Corinthians chapter 7 is what Paul's referring to when it comes to divorce, just so you know. that's what, I oh, think you okay. were trying to hit that one. Um, so if I'm understanding, you, you're going to have to replay that out for me to even be able to say whether I agree or don't agree. So I guess it's just as as pastors, someone comes to us. They're in their second marriage. Their first marriage did not end on biblical grounds. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah. Okay, so that's we, that's we what would, I was understanding. Yeah, we wouldn't counsel them to divorce their current spouse. Correct. I would agree with you Yeah, on that. so that's what I would just say there. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it is. It's such a complex issue. I think you've got to, because I, I don't think in that moment, it's God honoring to just break ties with your recommitted relationship, maybe. I don't know, man. Right. Like, yeah. I, it's one of those things that I, I, in the moment, I'd have to prayerfully, prayerfully consider, Holy Spirit, what do you say when I have to navigate that situation? I don't. I've navigated the abuse one um, where there's been questions about whether or not someone should leave uh, and, and divorce a spouse because of abuse. Uh, and not just verbal abuse, but physical abuse too. I think verbal abuse is, is a borderline one that I think we got to be very careful with because any, anyways. Um, but I've, I've not navigated the, uh, I divorced my spouse because of irreconcilable differences, not marital unfaithfulness. Right. Um, and I'm in a different marriage. I think God knows our heart. I think God knows the intent and the motive. And I think God is in the business of redeeming lives, not not condemning them. And so I think we gotta be very careful. Yeah. And the, and the last thing I'll say on this before we before we wrap it up for today is we're kind of just giving you our opinions. The the things that <laughs> yes. the, the thing that scripture is very clear on is the the biblical grounds for divorce, and these are the uncontroversial ones: is uh, adultery and being left by an unbelieving spouse. There's yes. a, there's some gray area in there, and I would say if you're in this situation, you're wandering through it. Don't just take what we're saying. Like yeah. this is something for sure to talk about with your yeah. own with your own pastor. And that's that what I, and that's church. what I appreciate about the Gospel Coalition and their articles. Even the other there was another article I was reading, um, which is why I had to have the clarity clarity of Evan's statement. Um, but says the same thing. It's you can't just take someone's word to justify what you want to do. You've got to really navigate with someone who knows you, um, who you come under the authority of, and and not Pastor Aaron from Marysville, Washington, or Pastor Evan, but um, from your pastor, from your your authority, who has God placed in your life that's a, a biblical, Christ centered authority, and you have to prayerfully navigate the conversation with them um, because God has given them the authority to be your shepherd and your pastor in that, in this season. And so, um, you can take counsel. I think that's part of what we are offering as counsel. I would have deeper conversations with an individual in our church. If they come forward and say, Hey, I, I need to talk about divorce and separation. And can we, can we meet? And cause then it would allow me to dive into more dialogue. But, uh, I want to be, we've got to be very clear here. Like you can't just take our word and say, Hey, well, Aaron said from Washington, well, who's Aaron? I, I don't know you from, I don't know him from Joe. It, you have to fall under the authority of that who, God has put in position above you as far as a biblical Christ-centered authority. So, so do that. That's a, that's a major piece to this conversation. And both those articles that I was reading through and sent uh, to the individual who asked this question says the same thing. You have to consult with your pastor, not just take an article or a blog, blog's word for it. So, right. All right. Well, on that heavy note, that does wrap it up for this. <laughs> it fits with the week, I guess. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Uh, as a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. Uh, and if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.